you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. We're continuing in this series that we've called Kings, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We, we started off with kind of the bad king, Saul, who ultimately loses God's anointing and gets replaced by David, this shepherd boy, musician, warrior who becomes the archetypical good king. He seeks God's heart. He listens to the prophets. He celebrates in this undignified manner in the text that Sarah preached because the ark was going to be there and the presence of God was going to be in their midst. And it was good. We jump forward a couple chapters to last week's text, though, and we find that he is also the bad. He... uh, He assaults Bathsheba. He has Uriah murdered. And according to Torah, he should die. He he should, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He should die for this. And yet he repents and and is spared. But yet the prophet says, you have life, but your life will never be the same. And in the few short chapters from last week's text to this week's text, we see how his life is never the same. The dreams of Israel, of, of all the promises made to Abraham, last about two chapters. There's a, a brief period of peace and prosperity, of, uh, of being a whole nation, of not having fighting, not having people uh, pressing in on them. And then the effects of David's sin break that all down. We, uh, we follow up the David and Bathsheba story with just how sin spirals uh, out of control for the rest of their story. The child that David and Bathsheba uh, had died, and from there it gets worse and worse. We, we learn about David's uh, son by one of his eight wives and multitudes of concubines. We, we learn about Amnon, his oldest son, the heir to the throne, And then we learn about another set of kids, Absalom and Tamar, children from another wife. And and in this family of sorts, they have to figure out how to live together. And and as uh, is the custom in these situations of of scriptural problems, uh, desire gets in the way. Amnon, the oldest son, uh, begins to uh, desire his half-sister to lust and long for Tamar. And this goes on and on and on until finally he concocts a situation where he, he fakes being sick and invites her in uh, to his bedroom when, when she is not safe and, and he assaults her. Tamar, sister of Absalom, uh, is uh, disgraced and is shamed. And Absalom is indignant. How, Father, how King David can this be? What are you going to do? And David says, I'm doing nothing. And so Amnon faces no uh, consequences for his actions, no uh, penalty for his sins. 
Absalom brings his sister into his home to protect her as she is, uh, in, in their culture and society, she is damaged goods. And he says, if, if our father won't care for you, I will care for you. He is angry. He is upset. And for two years, he stews and angers and, and uh, fumes about what he is going to do. And ultimately, he concocts a situation where his brother can be killed. Absalom, this younger brother of one wife, has Amnon, this older brother of another wife, killed. And David grieves. Another one of his children dead. This heir to the throne murdered. Absalom flees because he knows David's anger and he goes off and runs away and, and, and for a brief time there's just chaos and then ultimately uh, somehow word gets back to David that Absalom is sorry and, and wants to come back. But it's all the ruse. He comes back and as soon as he gets back around the kingdom he says, uh, I'm the king now. He declares himself king. He draws his own army together. He uh, sleeps with the concubines of his father. He drives David out of Jerusalem and things keep getting worse. These spiraling effects from uh, David's first sin just tear this family apart. David goes uh, and hides and runs. And, and so many of our Psalms you hear uh, attributed to David, you know, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where is my help in times of trouble? And, and often these texts say a Psalm of David while fleeing Absalom. They skirmish and they battle and they fight. And ultimately we come to the text that Jeremiah read for us today. This text where uh, David sends his warriors out to fight the nation of Israel. His son has, has made himself king and has this army. And he says, whatever you do, spare Absalom's life. However you have to win, win. But don't, don't harm my beloved son. And the text tells us that they go to battle, they go out, and 20,000 soldiers die this one day. Because of the sins of this family and the dysfunction that has spun out, 20,000 soldiers die. And ultimately, Absalom, uh, we read, is, is caught in the branches of a tree. Uh, some texts talk about it being his long flowing hair, the sign of opulence and wealth and his privilege that he's uh, got long hair. And he gets trapped in a tree. He falls off his horse and is hanging there, uh, suspended between heaven and earth. Somewhere between life and death. And in this moment, uh, the commanders could have easily just cut his hair, brought him down, and taken him back to David and said, here's your son. But instead, they cast spears through his heart and kill him right there. They send a foreigner back to David to say, we have won. And David says, yes. But tell me about my son, my beloved son, and they say, may it be like him for anybody who would uh, go against you, David. May they die like Absalom. And he weeps five times. Absalom, my son. Absalom, my son. Oh, that I should have died instead of you. Absalom, my son. David could have died for Absalom. He could have laid his life on the line and said, fine, I'd rather myself die than you. 
But now David is a broken man. His family keeps getting torn apart. There's uh, death all around. Dysfunction abounds. Last week, Nathan had told him, you will live, but there are still consequences for this sin. And David's story never gets back to happy. It never gets back to good. The promises of God to the people of Israel uh, seem watered down and hard to understand now. From here, uh, things are beginning to fraction even more. David will never uh, be uh, happy or delightful ever again. The people of Israel uh, will never see their nation whole again. God offers life, but doesn't promise that the effects of our sin won't remain. David, oh, that I might have died instead of you. This image gets picked up later, though, in the story of Jesus. This one who lowers himself to taking on flesh and saying, oh, that I might die for you. He redeems the David story and says, I am sinless and blameless, and I will die for you. I will offer you life. I will offer you wholeness. And you still have to take up your cross and follow me. He he doesn't promise that all things will be good. There's a large swath of the church that has corrupted this idea of freedom in Christ and said, if you trust in Christ, everything will be great. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You'll be rich. You'll have blessings. You'll have whatever you want. And yet that doesn't ever seem to be on the lips of Christ. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who suffer. Blessed are those who are persecuted. But he invites us into that life of confidence in him and trust that when we need to cry out, my God, he is there. At his ascension, he goes to reign and to intercede on our behalf. He offers the spirit to comfort and to counsel that all who believe, who confess with their mouth and repent in their hearts will find life and will have a counselor and comforter in the Holy Spirit to dwell with us for all of our days, to, to, to be the one who sits in that gap with us, that gap between the cross and new creation, that time when the effects of sin are gone, that time when there is no more pain and no more sorrow, no more tears and no more suffering, He promises the Spirit will not leave us or forsake us. It's hard for us to to put ourselves in David's shoes, the king of a Middle Eastern country 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, some thousands of years ago. It's hard to think about some of the the military excursions and the realities of his life, but if we're honest, it's easy to look around and say, what is the effects of sin in our world? To, to picture how it is to live east of Eden and waiting for new creation. And Jesus said, oh, that I might die for you. For some of us today, we haven't uh, maybe given ourselves fully to the one who would die for us. And said, I, I believe and I trust and I repent. And still others uh, have believed 
and have trusted, but still feel alone in the effects of our sin. Friends, wherever you are, cry out to God. Invite his spirit to warm your heart, to go with you and to guide you, to protect you, and to be with you in the midst of a fallen and broken world until that time when we enter new creation and things are made right, until there are no more pain, no more pain and no more sorrow, until we dwell in the presence of the God Most High, until we rejoice and delight and live in happiness. Would you pray with me? Holy and loving God, we look at the story of David and we just see sadness. We see brokenness, sin and death. And yet, in the midst of all that, you offer forgiveness and life. And then you took on flesh and dwelt amongst humanity offered yourself and said, I will die for you and I'll be raised to defeat death. You ascended and gave us your spirit as a promise of your presence with us to comfort and to counsel while we live in the middle of this time. Lord, would you draw near to us? Would you fill us with your grace? Would you sustain us in this day and in this week and in uh, our life ahead? Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you never cease loving us. You never grow weary of us and you never stop forgiving us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who gave himself up for us and by the power of the Holy Spirit, who draws near with us. Amen and amen. Wesley made the earliest Methodists uh, answer question every week. How have you attended to the means of grace? He expected these Methodists to have gone to the Church of England to have worshipped and to have received communion, to, to have gone and confessed their sins and have been made right before God, to go and to draw near in a thin space between heaven and earth and to counter the very person of Christ in the bread and cup. sustain us, to empower us, to, to go with us in lives of trust and confidence in him.